Ugh, I'm not in the mood. Do we have to do this? Yes. Wait, are we recording? Okay, let's go. You're listening to The Alley Colbert Show. Welcome back to the Allie Colbert Show. I'm your host, Allie Colbert. Thank you for joining us. Welcome, settle in, drive safe. How's the bath water? What are people doing right now? Emily Ratatowski and Eric Andre have revealed, have, have hard launched. Is that what people are saying? They hard launched the relationship on Instagram. And Eric Andre was lying on a couch and they sort of blurred out his cock. And Emily Ratatowski is in the background naked as if to say, look, look, we fuck. You know, Emily Ratatowski did say a little bit ago that she likes dating ugly guys. And it's not that Eric Andre, look, when I think Eric Andre, I don't think handsome. Oh, no, he's pretty, uh, he's pretty ugly. I know he's very funny and I get that that's appealing, but women need to stop doing this. We, we cannot keep fucking such ugly men. It's very upsetting. I'm torn, you know, because on the one hand, I'm going to flip. I'm going to do a fucking Amanda Hirsch steak emoji flip right now and say that women should only fuck ugly men. Because you know what? The counter is that we fuck these hot guys that are such idiots and don't deserve us and don't appreciate our personality and our nuances and our complexity and it's ridiculous but I am a little aggravated I think just because hot guys aren't fucking me for my personality but you know what hot women are so Emily Ratatowski you know what yeah I support you I came in hot there and I was gonna say we have to stop doing this but I actually think it's better you know it took me a whole two minutes to change my opinion from one extreme to the next and I think this is a good move I think it, we're, we're rewarding the right things in society by fucking ugly men. Where it doesn't matter anymore if you're sort of must... I mean, look, it doesn't hurt if you're... God, Brad Pitt looks so good, doesn't he? I don't know why I'm so straight for Brad Pitt. Like, I really... I feel so gay. But for Brad Pitt, I mean, he looks so good recently. In those photos of him and Clooney, like, that's, that's a non-negotiable. But these hot guys that are just total zeros and have no sort of game or charm or robust humor, get them out of here. Get them out of here. Stop sleeping with guys just for their manicured dick. I think we got to go for Eric Andre's. Eric Andre in his ill-fitted sweatshirts. Yeah, wow. I did a. I really went from one, one side to the other on this one, but... I, I just, I think that that's the right thing. Does anyone else, I'm like not, bo- like the Ben Affleck, J-Lo stuff, sometimes I don't get them as a couple. Like, I don't get either of them. Like, I, I kind of think, like, if I met up with Ben Affleck and we had coffee, we would, like, both complain about things. J-Lo, I have no idea what I would say to her. I think she would be almost impossible to talk to. Very difficult to talk to, to have a conversation with. So I have a hard time imagining the two of them together. You know, Julian and I were talking lately about how every man I know, and I think, I don't know if I've mentioned this in the episode with Chris, but I keep getting these texts 
from men. I keep having these men in my life call me or text me or speak to me. And the way that they think to have a conversation is they just monologue about themselves for upwards of 35 minutes. And this can go on for years, by the way, that they just fucking talk about themselves with no window to sort of peek into anyone else's life. And they believe this is a conversation. And I think this is an epidemic plaguing so many men that they just, they monologue and they think they're having a dialogue. I mean, I it, I was like hit with a bunch of these fucking, we could call them, we could call them a manologue. I was hit with a bunch of these manologues recently and I got to a point where I, I came home and I looked at Julian and I was like, I can't, I can't see, run into another man. I can't have another man approach me because the manologuing, and by the way, let's get that word started manologuing because I think it's super fucking accurate that these men they just go on and on and they sort of droll and they kind of drag you through the debris of their thoughts and they don't they don't even sort of crane their neck even an inch to see what's happening in your sort of corner of the world and I was hit with fucking one after the other after the other I was like KO like knockout on the ground from all these manologues this past weekend. I mean, I get texts from dudes, dudes that are my friends, or that they feel that we have this friendship, and they'll just fucking dump manologue on me, just everything going on in their life. It feels like I somehow subscribed to a newsletter that I didn't know I subscribed to. I just want to reply to these people and be like, I'm sorry, I didn't sign up for this. Can you just take me off this like list of like the updates of Greg's life? Like This isn't a relationship, you realize. This is you fully on one corner of the stage doing your, like, Shakespearean soliloquy into, like, a dark corner, and I'm just like, I'm not a part of this, so please. I, I, I feel like I'm at every guy's, like, own production of Hamlet, and I just don't know how I got there, and I just don't. Shut up. Shut up. So I'm still a lesbian this week, I guess. Today on the show... Oh, before I get into that, I will say I'm watching season, I don't even know what's season four of You. You know, Penn Badgley, I, I heard him say, like, he, is, he didn't feel comfortable doing sex scenes because he's married. I, I think that's insane, dude. Aren't you an actor? Isn't that acting? Isn't, I don't get, like, the whole, where it's like, well, if it's a movie about wizards, you gotta make sure you got a real wizard to direct it. I'm like, well, aren't we kind of, isn't this a creative process? Like, you're not actually fucking. Isn't that kind of a weird, like, how do you, why do you, how do you play in love with someone then in, in your show, Penn? Because you're only in love with your wife. Isn't that, cr- like, I don't, it's hard for me to get that. I don't, I like, I have this like love-hate relationship with you, the show, and also you guys. But I, like, I, it's so bad, but I just am hanging on for dear life. I like how, like, obsessive he is. I feel like I can get behind that. I'm like, yeah, I'm fucking fixating on these women, too. It's just like watching someone's Instagram story over and over and just salivating. That's his whole fucking persona, and I can, I really identify with that. I identify with sort of this murderous lone stalker who's so misguided. Having fun with it. Having fun with the show. He's, he's, he's got the beard to cover up his sort of gaunt skeletal frame this season, which I appreciate because he was getting fucking creepy with his shirt off and his little, like, furry, scrawny chest, which no fucking shame. What I'm saying is, fuck him, ladies. He's, he passed the threshold. We should fuck. If I were a dude, I would look like him. So I'm not right. Today on the show, 
we have Chris Ratcliffe. He is a coach who specializes in working with people with anxious attachment. I have learned about attachment styles, but I never like really explored it on the show or got to sit down with someone who specializes in them and ask them questions. And it's super interesting. It's not about eating pussy for once. But I think the attachment styles, we're lucky. We have all of this language to help us be better daters, you know. That's why all of our parents got divorced. There was no love language or attachment style. People were just traumatized, and then they had sex, and then they, you know, scraped things together to buy a TV dinner. Now we have a love language. We say, sorry, you're not my Myers-Briggs. I can't hang out with you. I'm an anxious attached. I'm an insecure. And it's like you kind of, it's a loophole. Anyway. It's a good it's a good conversation. I don't know if it's a loophole, but what I'm trying to say is it's something you you blame. It's not a loophole. What am I thinking of? What's the word I'm thinking of? It's like I get to basically say, Oh, I don't mean to be a psycho, but I'm I'm crazy attached. That's my attachment style. Is unhinged. I'm unhinged attached. Anyway, Chris is great. Listen to the interview. You're already you're already in the episode, so you're already I don't know. I'm like I'm like, keep go keep go on, go on. Subscribe. Have I ever have I ever told you guys to subscribe? I don't know why it's just coming uh scratching my mind now. Subscribe. Like the show, five stars only. I don't want the four. I don't want the three. Just do the five. Five or get out of there. I don't need you the zero. You're not helping the community. You're just wasting your time. Because I'm going to keep doing the show no matter what. You're not going to tank it with the ratings. I'll just keep doing it. Just don't, let's not, don't waste your time. Don't waste my time. Comments, why not? Subscribe. Have I said subscribe? And guys, you can still call into the show. We're going to do a voicemail episode very soon. Uh, I have the, sh- the number in my Instagram bio. It's 833-722-5546. The Ali Colbert Show at gmail.com. All right, enjoy the show. Welcome to The Ali Colbert Show. I'm joined by Chris Ratcliffe. Um, am I saying your last name right, Chris? Yeah, you are. Ratcliffe. Great. I did it. So, you know, I talk a lot about dating on my show, relationships. I give polarizing advice, but I haven't properly explored attachment styles. Mm. So I'm excited to do that with you. And just, will you tell everyone a little bit about yourself and your background before we get into it? Yeah, of course. So my name's Chris Ratcliffe. I'm a coach for people specifically with an anxious attachment style. And that's one of the four predominant Mm. attachment styles, which I'll get into in a second. Before this, my career was in social media strategy in New York. Now I'm in Charleston, South Carolina, growing roots, putting roots down, changing things up, slowing my life down. Are you? Yeah, bought a house. Are you starting a family? No, I got a cat the other day. So that's a start, right? All of this is kind of in the last few years. But now that I'm a life coach, I'm helping people to learn from the mistakes that I made. Mm -hmm. And to also, you know, take a really more trauma informed, more attachment informed approach to the way that they create all kinds of bonds in their life, whether that's a friendship, or of course, a romantic relationship, which is where attachment tends to come out most drastically for folks because that's where we feel most vulnerable. Now, there's four attachment styles. Attachment theory dates back to the 1950s and 60s. It's a branch of psychology that was started by a bunch of folks back about 60 years ago. Some of the initial researchers were John Bowlby, Mary Ainsworth, among others. And what they did is they conducted what's now called the strange situation test where they basically separated children from their caregivers at the time that would have primarily been mothers, of course, studying separating child from mom. And what emerged from that study was 
different styles that they noticed in terms of the behavior of the children that they were studying. So there were different styles of relating to that separation. And out of that emerged the four attachment styles. Now, of course, there's been a lot more research done on this out in the real world, not just with children, but there's now a spectrum of attachment from insecure to secure. No one's absolutely insecure. No one's absolutely secure. Most people fall somewhere in the middle, bell curve type of stuff. But on the insecure side of the attachment spectrum, you've got the anxious attachment style, which is what I specialize in because that was my struggle for many years. So I can speak to that truth mm-hmm. and what it's like to experience you know, that, that cluster of symptoms and that struggle. There's also the avoidant attachment style. And then there's a combination of the two. On the secure side of things, there's just the secure attachment style. The secure style is basically pretty self-explanatory. These are folks that were raised in pretty stable environments. So they learned to really bond with others in a really easy, warm, welcoming way. They have no issue opening up to others. Now they still get insecure from time to time, but they know how to open up about their feelings, how to express themselves. And they have good, strong emotional regulation techniques that they've picked up along the way that they had modeled for them. Right. On the insecure side of things, that's where things get really interesting, right? And it's about 50-50 in terms of the population. You've got about 50% that's insecure, 50% that's secure. On on the insecure side of things- I have a hard time imagining 50% are secure. I, I know, I know. And some of these numbers, of course, are kind of extrapolated from smaller pools of data. So how accurate is it really? I'm not sure. But- Many people are yeah. are secure. And that's because as a species, as human beings, we're pretty resilient, right? We can get banged up and roughed around and we kind of make it out okay. It's usually though right. through childhood trauma that many insecure attachment styles are formed, including the anxious one. And that's where I specialize. Anxious folks tend to experience a deep-seated fear of abandonment. They need a lot of reassurance. They crave closeness in their connections. And out in the wild, they can really struggle in the early stages of dating. It's kind of like a Whitney Houston lyric, falling in love is so bittersweet, right? You're out there, you're connecting with people, but also there's the prospect of being abandoned. And for the anxious folks, this can mean, again, either physically or emotionally, they've typically experienced loss of some sort. For me, my parents divorced when I was two. My mom was an alcoholic moved really far away when I was eight years old after my parents were co-parenting and she so you have so you're secure you have a secure attachment style (laughs) yeah right so I've had to do a lot of work (laughs) to kind of claw my way to a more secure place and now of course I'm teaching my clients what I've learned but a lot of this comes from experiencing instability growing up in relationships people that are kind of there kind of not there there's a lot of Uh, will they or won't they meet my needs? Are they going to be here for me? And sometimes it's big T trauma, right? So sometimes it's really that death of a parent or a big nasty divorce or experiencing actual abuse, like physical or emotional or sexual abuse. Other times it's kind of little T trauma that adds up over time. It's small moments of invalidation that experienced over time creates dysregulation in the nervous system. You get an imprint from these experiences that makes you anticipate them in the future. For the anxious folks, they're anticipating someone leaving them, them not being good enough. We internalize a lot of these experiences and create 
stories around them, of course, to justify the treatment that we've endured. Right. On the avoidance side of things, they're completely opposite, by the way. Yeah. How does that look? How does the avoidant attachment style show up and what does that look like in relationship? Avoidant attachers crave space and independence. They have a very deep rooted sense of self. So they don't want to give that up. They've learned typically by having parents that saw enmeshment with them. So similar situation, let's say there's a divorce and the mom gets custody of the son and she's relying on him a lot for her own emotional regulation. He learns that, quote unquote, needy people need me. They need to rely on me. And so I need to develop a strong sense of self in order to take that on. And at the end of the day, mm. avoidant attachers also only have a pretty small threshold when it comes to the amount of vulnerability they're willing to experience. Their coping mechanism, mm -hmm. which is an insecure one, is to check out. They dismiss, they shut down, they, their system basically fries itself. It becomes overwhelmed and it short circuits. So they literally cannot mm. be vulnerable beyond a certain point. This is why avoidant attachers in the early stages of dating, they tend to crave intensity like the anxious attacher, and they both tend to pair up, which is a very interesting dynamic, of course, because they have opposing needs. But the avoidant right. attacher- well, like They remind each other of mommy. <laughs> yes, exactly. We always recreate the emotional dynamics we experienced previously, usually going back to the first relationships we had as children. And we do this unconsciously and yeah. unintentionally, of course, but it feels familiar to our nervous system. So we seek it out as an attempt mm -hmm. to try to resolve it right. with little to no avail, of course, because we're just bringing in people who remind us of people that have already abandoned us or tried to enmesh with us or control us on the avoidance side of things. So um, in the early stages mm -hmm. of dating, the avoidant person is typically pretty emotionally available. They don't present as avoidant. And that's because... They don't feel like they're going to lose their sense of self. And when that becomes threatened, like when the prospect of an actual commitment is put on the table, when shit gets real, that's when they typically run the other direction. So they'll just completely go mm. radio silent after texting you every day. In my experience, both personally and now professionally working with anxious attachers, this usually occurs somewhere between weeks eight and 12. Although sometimes it can happen sooner or a little later, but they cannot tolerate that level mm. of emotional availability and vulnerability for too long. It's deeply uncomfortable for them. They fear that they're going to lose right. their autonomy. Yeah. You know, what's an interesting thing I, I think about the, the attachment styles is that it's sort of it's both helpful to name. This is my my style. I identify with these symptoms and then at the same time, I wonder how much of it is sort of committing to this like this dysfunctional pattern or committing to, you know, this is how I am when it really is something that and I guess this is a great question for you because you work with people with anxious attachment style. But how much of it is something that you can heal or move through and how much of it is just a part of you? Great question. You can heal from an insecure attachment style, no questions asked. Hands down, this is not a static fixed thing. It's called a style for a reason. These are kind of clusters of maladaptive relational responses. And that's a kind of fancy way of characterizing ways that our nervous system has 
insecurely responded to instability in the environment. So we shut down on the avoidance side of things or on the anxious side, we tend to reach out a lot, a lot more. We're overreacting. We're trying to overcorrect in that way. And so in that regard, mm -hmm. the anxious person is usually the pursuer and the avoidant person is usually the taker. And again, they pair up and we can certainly get mm -hmm. into that. But no, it is not fixed. It is learned. You don't emerge from the womb with a dysregulated nervous system. These are imprints that are created over time through experiences. And so the power resides in realizing that, first of all, you are not the experiences that you have been through. You existed before them and you exist now after them. Learning to experience and finalize the trauma arc and the stress cycles that typically we become stuck in at a certain point. And for those you know, who are listening, I'm motioning with my hands here because I look at it almost like a speedometer a little bit. You're getting stuck somewhere halfway or close to the completion of that cycle. Many of us feel stuck mm. and we can feel this in our bodies. It manifests as you know, sweaty palms and erasing heart and over rumination, dissociation. So not feeling the feelings in your body. We learn these ways of trying to survive. And by the way, there is nothing wrong with trying to protect yourself. The younger these experiences happen, the more impressionable you are. And of course, the kind of deeper they right. become, but you can surmount this. It does take work. You've got to kind of face the traumatic yeah. stuff and feel the feelings that Usually to date, you've used other things in their place. So things like substances or sex, other coping mechanisms instead of feeling betrayal or rejection or abandonment. Mm. Those are very challenging emotions yeah. to hold space for as social creatures. Yeah. You know, I just did this relationship training with my partner, Julian, and she is a coach. She's more of a, what would I call her? it's like, I, I don't know that it's, I mean, it's some personal development, but it's like a very results oriented coach. So she's not, you know, focusing on attachment style in the same way that you are, or sort of like the nuts and bolts of kind of breakdown in relationship and, and where we go. But we did mm -hmm. this relationship training that was a part of, I don't know if you've heard of Atlas. It's like a part of this like life spring teachings. Yeah. It, it was really fascinating how, the way that we sort of the things that we felt about our parents or felt from our parents, we subconsciously attract in our partners and what you're saying about, you know, the anxious person being the pursuer and also this idea that kind of all of the things that we've developed as our armor at one point in time were serving us and protecting us and being able to kind of hold it out at an arm's distance and say, I, I see what you did for me. Thank you. I don't need you anymore. Mm. And and doing that disarming and like interrupting those patterns are so tough because they kind of just run us on like autopilot. Yeah, of course. That's what being in survival mode is all about. Yeah. it's it's So what is some of the work that you do with people that allow them to kind of interrupt these patterns or, or choose differently and, and kind of move into a different form of attaching? If you want to grow more secure, like if you're listening to this episode and you're like, damn, I'm anxious or damn, I'm avoidant or the combination of the two, which we didn't get into, but basically it's at any given moment, one of the two extremes, space or closeness, reassurance or leave me the fuck alone. And that can be a bit volatile too. 
many folks do experience both. I definitely feel like I'm that way. Yeah. It's very, very common, very common. And it can change depending on the dynamic and the person that you're relating to and relating with. Right. But in terms of healing, if you want to grow more secure, there are a few things that need to be put in place. And the structure of coaching and the practicality of it is very helpful for this. Also, the accountability of knowing someone's going to check up on you is super helpful. Mm. So all that said, many people try to think their way out of an attachment style. Many people try to think their way out of their feelings in general. You cannot do this. Healing work is about 20% cognitive and about 80% somatic or physiological. So you can see why it would be problematic that many people are going to therapy, talking about things, and they make a decent amount of progress, but they feel stuck, right? It's because that physiological component is missing. You're speaking my language. Seriously. Let's go. Yes. I love this. I really love this. Like, I'm so into this somatic work, and, like, we've done so much of it, and and it feels to me like I've made so many strides doing that, and I've been in therapy for decades, and it doesn't even touch upon what I store in my body and how I – just like show up in myself. I mean, I, I'm just really into it. Keep going. I'm just cheering you on. Yeah, Thank you. I appreciate it. And I'm super into it too. It's, it's played a major role in my own healing. And now that's why I'm helping my clients to learn how to better regulate their nervous system, which by the way, is a super Mm. flashy, like cliche term to use now. And here's what it means. Taking care of your vessel of your container realizing that trauma is stored in the body, meaning those memories are not stored in the mind in the same way that thinking about your last anniversary or your last birthday would be. Because we tend to try to repress these or dissociate from these experiences as a form of survival. So in order to integrate, which just means fully experiencing and incorporating the the full scale of emotions that we're meant to experience into our system and allowing that energy to work its way out. Practicing somatic things like cold exposure, yoga, even weightlifting, like this stuff is not reinventing the wheel. It's moving your body. It's engaging your body. Many of us never even stop to touch ourselves. And I don't mean like masturbation. Although of course that is also a way of regulating your system. Crying is a way of regulating your nervous system. These are not things that are going to be out of the norm of your everyday, you know, techniques, but many of us don't utilize them consistently. Consistency is the key. You don't arrive at a moment of healing or an aha moment, just sort of out of the blue. You arrive there by what you're doing day in and day out, how you're showing yourself, your body, your nervous system, how you're modeling and creating new imprints by creating the stability that you never had previously. You must do this for yourself. This is stepping back more fully into a space of power instead of the powerlessness that so many of us experience growing up. So it's that shift from powerlessness to being in a space of being powerful, making conscious choices to invest in ourselves in ways that we know are replenishing. So journaling, meditating, expressing gratitude, cold exposure is a great way to create tolerance in the nervous system because you're giving the body an actual threat. You're shocking the body with cold water, which isn't typical of what we're used to experiencing. 
And when you do that and you breathe intentionally through it, because naturally you're going to go into a space of hyperventilation into survival mode and you're sitting through it and you're teaching your body, it will not die. If you do this, you're building more vagal tone. You're creating more of that tolerance. What that means is that the next time you're triggered, which will activate your system, your system activates the same way, whether it's a perceived threat in the environment, whether it's something like, oh, my partner hasn't texted me back. What are they doing? Who are they with? Or whether it's actually like someone holding you at gunpoint or knife point, you will have the same physiological response. The brain and the body do not know the difference. Again, the intent is to keep you safe. You go into survival mode. It's not a bad thing. It's designed to protect you. But when you're going into that mode because of a perceived threat, and you've done practices like cold exposure and meditation proactively and consistently, you have built up a space that buys you enough time. And for many people, a couple of seconds is enough for them to be able to say, oh, wow, I'm triggered. That is all you need to be able to say to identify the experience that's happening. Wow, okay, I'm feeling my heart is racing, my pulse is quickening, my mind is going, I need to stop, I need to go for a walk, I need to take a break and self-regulate. That in and of itself can save an entire relationship because when we reach out to people in a state of nervous system overreactivity or dysregulation, we actually push people away. We engage in protest behavior. Anxious and avoidant folks do this all the time and it only pushes away the very connection we're seeking and it's deeply unhealthy. So you have to take responsibility for that by taking better care of yourself. And of course, cognitive techniques help. So reframing techniques, yeah. learning to journal out your feelings instead of letting them swirl up in your mind, that's how you spiral. Drain it out. Drain out the poison onto a sheet of paper. And more importantly, read it aloud. Read it aloud to yourself, to someone you trust and respect who can listen and just hold space for you. You can very easily see the absurdity in your thinking when you read it aloud. We process information differently when we hear it. And when we speak it versus when we write it. So that can change mm. the game for folks. But a lot of this work is somatic. So it's what you do every single day. And also really pushing into the hurtful experiences that you have dissociated from and refrained from completing yeah. their cycles. And doing that in a safe environment with a therapist or a coach like me is very powerful for folks because you know, your friends and your family, while well-intentioned, and even your partner, they all want to protect you. They don't want to see you get hurt. They don't want you to be in pain. But actually, your nervous system, your fear, your anxiety, they're all doing the same thing. They're trying to protect you from getting hurt. I'm not going to try to protect yeah. you. I need you to experience the pain and to learn and create imprints in your system that I can feel this and it is okay for me to do so. It's safe for me to do this. Do you, do you work with people then, maybe I'm making a jump, in a way that almost, in some of the work I've done with, in any sort of like setting meant for this where I'm like in a container, it's almost like I'm being triggered to then see what comes up and move through it. Yes. Is that, because what's the difference between working with you and, and a therapist? I mean, my talk therapist, first of all, they're, they're not going to, you know, sort of task me with these are the things that I want you to do that I think will help you. 
But I don't think therapists, you know, create a space where you're meant to sort of have this like directionality of, okay, now go here and go there. Are you bringing your, the people you work with to like an activated place so they can feel, okay, I'm in, rea- I'm in reaction right now. I feel ch- heat in my chest. What's happening? Yes, there is some of that. And I want to kind of back up a, a step here and frame for people sort of the differences between working with a therapist and working with a coach. And to keep in mind that there are different approaches therapeutically to this, and not all of them are talk-centered only. So you have things like CBT or cognitive behavioral therapy or DBT, dialectical behavioral therapy. They're all under the same umbrella. You also have EMDR. So using motion, eye motion techniques to actually bring up and expose the experiencer Mm -hmm to the dissociated memories traumatically that come in flashes and to experience them again. So there are modalities within therapy that do create an environment where you're doing exposure therapy. That's what that is. You're exposing yourself to the trauma again. I'm not necessarily doing that with folks. What I'm doing is I'm creating an environment where they can do it for themselves. So we practice things like inner child visualization techniques where they sit down with a younger version of themselves with me in a safe environment. And I guide them through this where they have a conversation with a previous version of them who typically was silenced or never really fully got to express how they were feeling. Many people grow up in environments where feelings just weren't talked about, or it's not okay to kind of be quote unquote dramatic or to cry or things like that. So sitting with those versions of themselves that were bullied or that went through that really painful breakup or that divorce at a super young age and didn't have the language to describe it and soothing themselves in that environment creates an environment Mm. where they can let it out. So I'm not necessarily pushing them into the trauma again. I'm creating an environment where they can safely release the emotions and express them And that's just one technique. Basically, in my work, what I do is I throw everything I learn or have learned about anxious attachment at my clients and we see what sticks. Every person is a little bit different and respond to different kind of approaches. Some people really love gratitude. Some people really love the inner child work. Some people really love the nervous system stuff and just moving their body and having the environment of accountability right? And the practicality of knowing, okay, I'm assigning you these two weeks of exercises. The next time we meet, I'm going to ask you about this. In the interim, I'm going to be checking up with you over text, you know, every four or five days just to see how it's going. If and when you're triggered in between our sessions, reach out to me, let's work through it together. Having that kind of companionship is really what coaching is all about. And also the practicality of it. It's also future directed. So we're only going to talk about the past to the extent that it moves you forward to a more secure, stable, more confident place. And we use our sessions to practice what that sounds like, what it's like to set a boundary. Many people don't know what it sounds like and haven't really practiced that. So we do role play a lot where I'll play the role of their partner and they'll set the boundary with me and we'll practice different reactions so that they can prepare for what that sounds like and feel safer to bring it up. That way they mm. you know, know what it, what it would be like to have someone securely respond to them because they, a lot of folks I work with have never experienced that. They haven't ever had someone say, you know what? 
thank you. Thank you for telling me how you feel. I never want you to hold in what's making you anxious. And I never intended to make you feel abandoned or left out. I was super busy at work and it's not an excuse. And I, I hear you, I'm going to do a better job of communicating moving forward. Imagine if you heard that for the mm -hmm. first time, it's a game changer for folks. So I have them practice typically with folks that are closer to them and work up to environments that are more challenging. So it's learning yeah. and imprinting on their nervous system, that level of safety. So I play that role for them oftentimes. I help them to learn that. If, if, you know, if you're listening and you're not sure what your attachment style is, I mean, I feel a lot of people are combinations of, of them. Is there a specific quiz or a specific, how do you recommend people go about really understanding what their attachment style is? There's a couple of different ways. I would say there's three ways really, and maybe two, the first two would be expressions of the same kind. You can self quote unquote diagnose. This is not a diagnosis per se. An attachment style is not a mental health disorder or illness as you know identified in the DSM. But that said, you can go online and you can take a quiz and see what comes out. I like the quiz on the attachment project. I think it's really great. I get nothing out of that, by the way. It's just my personal preference. And I refer a lot of people there. It's... And he gets a dollar every time everyone <laughs> takes it. If only, right? Uh, no, unfortunately, yeah. or perhaps fortunately. <laughs> so sending people there is a good thing because they're really focused on helping to inform people about attachment theory. It's a really great kind of third-party resource. And it's free. So you can take that and yeah. in five minutes, you can find out you know, what your style is. You can also self-identify. A lot of people are able to kind of hear the different styles and know with relative immediacy, which one they are. Again, because anxious and avoidant are so opposite, usually you're identifying with one or the other. Sometimes if you are the combination of the two, situationally, you might bounce back and forth between them. Happens all the yeah. time. Many of my clients, instead of growing more secure, they'll grow avoidant. So they'll just shut down, check out, rely on themselves, isolate in the same way that kind of the lone wolf or the avoidant would, instead of learning to open yeah. up about their disappointments, stop, you know, cutting people off entirely, learning to set boundaries, learning to protect their energy a bit better, be intentional about the people mm -hmm. they're bringing into their lives and realizing that the people you surround yourself with have a huge impact on your nervous system. So you can yeah. self-identify in one of those two ways, or you can work with a mental health professional who can help. A therapist can very easily help you to identify your attachment style. Or, you know, if you have any questions, of course, reach out to me. Let's talk about it. Is it then fair to say that codependency is when two anxious attachment styles come together? Or is that not always the case? Not always the case. Codependency is a core component of the anxious attachment style. Typically, that's what anxious fo folks are seeking. They're seeking that enmeshment. Enmeshment is a way of describing a codependent bond. Codependency means nothing more than the sacrifice of your own needs in order to build or maintain a relationship with somebody else. What it means is you become the lesser party. You sacrifice your own self-care or nervous system regulation. You withhold and fail to express how you feel. A lot of this is, again, core to the anxious experience. But of course, it takes two to tango. So codependency does require somebody else that's taking 
from that. And usually the trauma bond that the anxious and avoidant attachment styles are creating is a codependent dynamic. Neither one can leave, even though they know it's not working and they'll continue to spiral and trigger each other because their needs are opposite and they both personalize the either closeness that the anxious person is seeking on the avoidant side or the space that the avoidant is seeking the anxious person is personalizing that super, super common, but they're each kind of sacrificing their own needs in order to create this dynamic. It's deeply unhealthy, deeply unhealthy. So what's the, what's the specification of enmeshment in terms of codependency? Enmeshment is just another way of describing a state in which you're trying to make another person your entire world, your entire world. Many of us, because of the culture that we live in, the media that we've consumed, the narratives we've been fed typically, and also the desires that we've had, typically going back to childhood to have someone that really sees us and appreciates us for who we are, that we seek this out. We want to fully bond with another person. Again, this is at the heart of the anxious attacher's deepest desires. They want someone who they can have be their end all be all. Of course, that's completely unrealistic because putting that much pressure on one person is very difficult for them to sustain over time. They're not perfect. They're humans. They have their own passions and hobbies and interests and dreams and careers and families and friends. How are they supposed to be your everything? They cannot. It's too much of an unrealistic expectation. And that's what enmeshment means, seeking the complete connection Mm. with another, basically losing yourself in a relationship only to create a new bond in which both of you only have each other. Mm. And Chris, what was your experience coming into this work? Because you said you healed yourself And you felt you were very anxious attached, but you seem like you're really fucking on it now. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. I would consider myself about 75% secure and 25% anxious. And I don't judge myself for what I used to judge myself for. I don't beat myself up or shame myself when I experience anxiety. I have different ways of coping now. I don't go out and drink incessantly or have a whole lot of casual effects as a way to try to cope with my emotions. So I have healthier ways of being, of regulating my nervous system. And, you know, what that looked like is a lot of years of making the wrong fucking choices. A lot of years of feeling professionally like I was thriving and personally like I was crazy. I mean, I legitimately thought I was Mm. there was something wrong with me. And I was the only person in the world who had trouble forming bonds with other people. Then, of course, enter attachment theory. I have a degree in psychology. And yet somehow this kind of got pushed into the back of my mind. And then in my own therapy journey, my therapist had the wherewithal to say, have you heard of this? And I said, yes, why? And we had a discussion about it. And I started doing research around it. And then I kind of just became obsessed with it. I I needed to learn everything about it because it helped to validate me and feel seen in ways that I never was before. There were now reasons behind why I had behaved the way that I had. And there, Mm. in addition, was a way out. There was a way to address the core wounds that I had that were causing me to, one, 
continue the dysregulation in my nervous system and in my body to continue dissociating from the experiences of being in my body. And two, to learn how to do that more safely. So through a lot of trial and error, and this is ultimately why I got into doing this work. So people don't have to waste years of their lives like I did. I mean, I struggled since I was two, two years old. And, you know, it's still a work in progress. I'm a human being. I don't consider myself perfectly secure, absolutely healed. Those are perfectionistic propositions that only make us reinforce the sense of shame that keeps us locked on the insecure side of the attachment spectrum, thinking you're not good enough, mm -hmm. thinking you need to fix mm -hmm. yourself. You don't need to fix yourself. You're not a car. You, you didn't like hit a tree. You were treated poorly and your body and your mind reacted to that. There's absolutely nothing wrong with that. And even just having someone that can say that to you is a game changer. You know, someone that can see you in all of your beautiful trauma and all of the mistakes and missteps that you've made. Yeah, it took a lot of work. It's still a work in progress for me. You know, I have my own therapist, my mm. own coach. I read a ton. I'm learning more and more every day about myself and feeling more and more into my experience and living more and more authentically as a result. I don't hide my feelings anymore. Is there a book that really stuck stuck with you or stays with you today on, that was a part of this journey for you? The Body Keeps the Score is a classic one. That's really focused, again, mm -hmm. a lot on the physiological and somatic aspects that we've been talking about today. It is, it's a big read. It's a big book. It can be kind of a little too technical for most people, but it is a good read. It's good to go there. I would work your way up to that. Attached is a good intro for folks. It is imperfect. A lot of the advice in Attached is what I would consider to be outdated at this point. A lot of it is mm. just like, find someone secure today instead of realizing, you know, <laughs> hoping for someone secure to show up on your doorstep and whisk you away is part of the problem. You have to grow more secure yourself. Someone's got to bring the security to the table. If half the population is on the insecure side of things, you know, and they're just waiting for the other half to whisk them off their feet and somehow be compatible and be able to build a life together. It ain't going to work. There are other books like right. Insecure in Love. My friend Ricky Kluse, who runs the Anxious Hearts Guide on Instagram, has a book called The Same Thing, The Anxious Hearts Guide. Great read, really powerful. I'm working on my own book right now, which will be called Needy No More and come out later this year based on my own experiences and working with hundreds of clients on five continents, which still blows my mind. This is experience wow. all over the world, wow. all over the world. But those are some reads to start with. Thank you. And, and let's uh, tell people where they can find you also. Of course. So if you're interested in potentially working with me, I run coaching programs specifically for people with an anxious attachment style. I've got one-on-one -on -one offerings. I've got group coaching cohorts that are running on a regular basis. I also have a Facebook support group that's very financially accessible for folks who might not be able to afford one-on-one -on -one coaching, right? Because it is more bespoke. And I also do breakthrough sessions. And if you're interested in any of those, or if any of this has re resonated with you, you can find me on my website at cracklift.com. That's cracklife with two Fs my first initial and last name.com slash coaching. C-R-A-C-K-L-I-F-F-E dot com slash coaching. Amazing. Thank you so much for doing the show. Thank you, Allie. I'm grateful.